Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Kate Bakos of Kate Bakos Property. She's the winner of the Best Buyer's Agent in Your Investment Property magazine and she's a published author with successful property investment. We have a chat to Kate about her background in the sciences field, how she purchased her first property at the ripe young age of 21, and how she goes about the due diligence process and purchasing process for her property investor clients. We also delve into some regional markets in Ballarat and Geelong and have a look at what those hot areas are doing with property prices and what the future might be. It's a great interview and I hope you enjoy it. Here's Kate. Kate Bakos, thanks for joining me on Geared for Growth. It's a total pleasure. Thank you for having me on board. Awesome. Been looking forward to it. Um, your uh, reputation precedes you and we'll, we'll, we'll get into that uh, and more. So, for, for people that haven't heard of you, Kate, can you tell us who you are and what you do? Yeah, I'm a buyer's advocate and a qualified property investment advisor. I know that's a handful. <laughs> I'm a mama and I live in Melbourne's inner west and I work in the inner west. So, I help people buy their home. I help investors buy an investment, anything from first-time investors all the way through to what we call sophisticated or experienced property investors. Yep. And to give us a bit of an insight into, into young Kate, what posters were on the wall as a youngster? <laughs> I have a Davies. <laughs> I really liked Ice House. Right. Um, <laughs> that's that's yeah, back I, when mullets were cool, right? <laughs> that's right. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed my music and <laughs> I, I can't say that I, I had, um, you know, too much of a, a commercial um, outlook when I was really young. I, I was a hard worker though. I had a good work ethic and you know, enjoyed my music and had my friends and that's probably <laughs> a good snapshot. That's good. We can work with that. So, how did you get started in, in property and what was your first investment? Yeah, okay. I, I was a young purchaser. I was really motivated to get my first home and I, I bought my home when I was 21 or secured the property. Wow. I made all of the classic rookie mistakes back then. I, I bought something off the plan and had to wait a long time for it to be finished. And in hindsight, I could have done something a lot better with the money, but I, I had my dad telling me not to take risks. <laughs> so, um, that was my first foray and I only held on to it for a year and decided that I could have done something better with that capital. And, and it actually did grow really well in that year. So, despite the fact that I broke my own rule and bought off the plan. I chose an area that was doing really well, and that yep. was Mordialic. So Mordialic um, had a, a rapid transformation during the time that I was waiting for the construction, and then when I owned the property for a year, and I took the money into another property and, and bought in Seaford, and it was an enormous block very close to the beach and the shops and the train station. Nice. And 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 it was a, a, a huge differentiation between the two because one was really geared for capital growth and I I saw the growth unfolding before my eyes and, and it was a great learning and I think at that point I was hooked. I could see that there was a lot of merit to property investing yep. and at the time I managed to live in that property while doing some improvements and ended up leapfrogging from there but it took a little while for me as a young one to understand the power of holding onto a property, accessing the equity, planning uh, a strategy that could work well for my cash flows and then being a multi-property investor. So, the, the classic mistake I made was thinking that you could take a gain um, by selling the property and moving on and leapfrogging but 
uh, that can come undone. Yeah, yeah. Of course, you've got the you know the stamp duty and all of those sort of prices for for playing. But um, yeah, pretty pretty impressive uh, age to be to be kicking off. Getting into sort of the professional side of things, you you started uh, in in a lab coat. Uh, I'm guessing. I did. Can you tell us a little yeah. bit about um, your your sort of background? Yeah, I studied chemistry at university and I was invited to do an honours year and obviously your specialisation um, increases as you stay at uni. So I, I came out with an honours degree in what we'd call uh, industrial chemistry, so air-sensitive chemicals and it essentially meant that if I was to stay in that field and within that discipline and, and work, I would be in a lab probably separated from other people because of the nature of the chemicals I was working with are <laughs> yeah, air sensitive, yeah. Yeah. which means if you know there's a little leak and air gets in, it will blow up. So it, wow. it was a very, very different um, That's way a of life. Antisocial uh, sort very. of pastime. <laughs> yeah, and I think you've just hit the nail on the head. I, I'm not antisocial. I love people. I love the interaction. I like to be very passionate about what I'm doing, and I just didn't have the passion for chemistry. I fell into it, and I stayed in it because it was the subject that I passed and seemed to do well in. And it wasn't through um, any sense of passion or excitement. I just got lucky that I understood chemistry like like someone understands a language. And I didn't want to drop out of uni or change tack because it would have really disappointed my parents. And that's a terrible thing to say, but when you're young and you've got that pressure on you of being the you know, first in your generation or first of many generations to go to university, you really don't want to burst someone else's bubble. So no, I exactly. stuck with it. I finished it. I, um, I had a fantastic boss when I first went out um, as a graduate and I was working in a, at, at uh, ICI, which is now Orica, and it, I was in a bit more of a people-facing role. I was, I was working in a, um, in a division of the business where um, we were doing a lot more reporting and I wasn't in a lab. And he was fantastic. He just said to me, I don't know how you got through this degree and, and got here with no apparent passion or interest <laughs> for the subject. <laughs> and he was spot on. So I, I had some really supportive managers in that those early days that I guess shifted me sideways until I, I landed in a sales role. And it was at that point I surprised myself because I always considered I was a bit too shy for that. And I was enjoying it. I liked the people interaction. I liked the marketing initiatives, and I particularly liked the idea that that my ability and my enthusiasm could help people. So I decided to back myself and go into the industry that I was actually quite passionate about. And so that's where it all started. Awesome. And I guess there are a couple of different directions you could have gone in that didn't sort of preclude conversation, you know, things that, that you know, jobs where things didn't explode on a whim. Um, why, yeah. why, why was it real estate? What, what was it about real estate that you were passionate about? Markets are so different. You've got unique markets all over Australia and even just circling one capital city. Um, there's a lot of room for analysis and I particularly like the analytical side of property and obviously you've got people involved, but you can really help others build wealth and I was certainly building wealth myself. And so it was a complete cocktail of, of exciting things that I felt that I was good at and I was good at the analysis I uh, was good at the commercial side of things. I really enjoyed the negotiating and the, the deal-making um, and obviously being um, able to relate to people and enjoy all types of personalities and also see when when fear or concern or risk appetite 
is different among couples. There's a lot of diversity to this role, but all of the things that that are diverse are the things that I guess get me excited. Yeah, and I guess there's some some I guess correlation between the analytical side of of the sciences and and then studying markets for for growth drivers and that sort of thing as well. So it wasn't completely yeah. sort of a, a, a sideways direction. No, not at all. There's a, a lot of skill that I've been able to, to transfer from my days of study and certainly statistics, that's an important one. There's a lot of elements that I carry with me and when you mix that human side with the science side, it's it's a really incredible role. Now, 21 is a fairly young age to be purchasing a, a property. Um, h- how did you manage that? I'm, I'm guessing that you were sort of skipping the, the avocado on, on toast and there, there must yeah, have been a fair avocado. amount of drive. So, so yeah, can, you, can you tell us about how you, you got into property at 21? Yeah, I was pretty driven. I look back now and think, gosh, that was a kid with a real fire in her belly. But at the time, it was I was I was single-minded about it. I really wanted a home and I didn't want to be renting or um, living, you know, back at home, God forbid. I, I grew up in the peninsula and I did not want to go back there. And I didn't mind how small or how rough the property was that I got as long as I could continue living in town and own my own property. So... I wasn't studying as hard as I should have and I was working night shift in a a deli in Coles and I got a lot of hours and I had a lot of support there to to take on extra hours and I was almost earning a full-time income there and just saving it. I was living with my brother so we had shared expenses and I was a super saver, I really was. So I I shopped carefully and made sure I – I had my borrowing capacity all sorted. I went for an 80% loan, which is pretty impressive when you think yeah. at the time I was I was a student. But I had a, a good income. I went on to take on permanent part-time hours there and, yeah, the rest is history. Yeah, wow. Well, and, and do you think, you know, young people, millennials are getting a bit of criticism for their, their saving and, and their lack of sort of pleasure delaying? Um, wanting things mm-hmm. now. Do, do you think that there, there is sort of a, a discernible difference between the way that sort of you were saving um, at, at that age and, and people now? Oh, that's a good question. I, we all like to have a bit of a laugh at the millennials expense, but the reality is I've met some really incredible millennials. I've seen some savings regimes and some efforts that, that trump mine. And I've also seen... Um, people that have travelled a lot and have that sense of entitlement. And I think that runs across every generation. I, I had mates who were my age who um, sat back thinking it would all happen or, or were, you know, reasonably relaxed about the idea of having their own home. And, you know, horses for courses, some people place an emphasis on, on travel and life experiences first and then um, bunkering down and saving second. But I've, I've seen a lot of really exciting stories where millennials have, have made it happen and I've, I've had people sit in front of me in my office scoping out a strategy and they're sitting on um, some really sizable deposits that they've saved themselves. So, yeah, hats off to, to any young saver that can do that and can also be creative enough to to look at, at the property that they're targeting as not their forever home. Yep. It's a stepping stone. It's an opportunity. And I remember the house in Seaford that I lived in. It was pretty rough. I'm surprised that... You know, we got away with with occupying it because <laughs> it was it was a very rugged house. We had one bedroom that 
had such um, poor floor levels, you couldn't stay in there because you'd have a headache. So <laughs> my first one was <laughs> the same. Actually, I think I needed a, a, a chemistry specialist just to see whether it was going to kill me or not. But uh, but you, oh, no. you've, got, you've got to start somewhere. You, you've yeah. um, you've you've got a, a bit of a background in the in the mortgage broking space as, as well. That 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 sort of seems to be something that that does go hand in hand with with some some property specialists. Is is that yeah. is that an important sort of skill set? For, for you um, in helping people with their investing and, and just personally in, in, in managing your own portfolio? Yeah, I can't tell you how grateful I am that I did that. I, I didn't enjoy working with the banks and I didn't love mortgage broking. I did it um, as an opportunity to, to stay close to residential property investing and, and purchasing while I was pregnant and then when my daughter was young so that I wouldn't lose touch with the market that I loved. But it was a really difficult time. I, I did mortgage broking over the GFC period and I was in it for just over four years and I, I learned a lot of really important skills. I, I had to develop some really difficult skills where you're talking to people and telling them they don't want to hear and it has a massive impact on their plans or their situation. Yeah. But I look back now and the, the cash flow analysis, the servicing calculating, uh, the difference in policy changes among lenders, um, the way that policy has gone um, in this more restrictive environment they've all been really valuable things for for me to to draw upon from my my experience as a broker and I, I think if you combine having worked in a real estate office having an analytical degree and having worked as a mortgage broker it's a pretty powerful trifecta and I call it the the apprenticeship that I I didn't like but yeah. my goodness it's really counted for a lot and I think it's it's something that separates me as a as a property specialist. There aren't a lot of advocates with that that background, and I'm forever grateful. Yeah, and it's obviously making a difference to to your success, success now. You're you're based in in Melbourne, and I know that um, you invest locally and, and and purchase property for for homeowners and investors in in Melbourne. But you you've also been tapping into some regional areas like Ballarat and Geelong. Um, Geelong's yeah. certainly a real success story. I think um, the core logic figures are showing it is is getting some some the best growth in the country. Can you talk us about mm. the drivers that you saw in those markets? Yeah, I can. Uh, Geelong was a really interesting one. People were quite cautious about Geelong after the Ford plant closure and there were a few other um, job losses in the area uh, at a similar time and people were fearful that that would have a really negative impact on Geelong. But in a lot of ways, there's been some positive come out of that. We've certainly had a shift in the demographic. We've seen people from Melbourne uh, domicile themselves in Geelong, whether they're working from home there or they've developed businesses locally or they're doing the commute, whether it's in the car or on the train. Um, Geelong is is not what it used to be. It's it's changed a lot. The waterfront precinct has had a bit of a facelift. There, there are other uh, government jobs going in Geelong. They've got a vibrant university and a hospital there. And it's I think its most dramatic change has really been that it's now – um, being recognised as a little bit of an extension to Melbourne. And that travel time's not something that, that's so difficult that people are avoiding the drive. So Geelong uh, has certainly risen um, up as, as an extension to Melbourne where you could otherwise be sitting on a train going out to a, a new house and land suburb. Yep. But it's also a really pretty city. It's got a lot going for it. Yeah, awesome. And what about Ballarat? Is that a similar sort of driver behind the market there? 
Ballarat's interesting. It's not quite the same drivers as Geelong because Geelong has seen a lot of people do the sea change. Yep. And we've also had quite a few investors jump onto it, obviously, but Ballarat was largely driven by the investor market. And I think that the combination of reduced uh, lending potential for a lot of investors who might have cast their gaze to Melbourne but have now been restricted with a lower budget and still want a house on land, uh, they've They've set their sights on on Ballarat because of the affordability. It's a, a lower yep. price point, but also we've had for both cities we've had our, our rail upgrades impact them positively. The commute is a little bit quicker, and it's you're not stuck behind the commuter trains. We've got separate tracks now, and there's talk of a higher speed train for both regions. Yep. And Ballarat has always been a, a higher yielding area, and obviously with the the recent and dramatic growth. We've seen yields come off a little bit. When I first started buying in, in Ballarat six years ago, seven years ago, we were getting 6% for wow. a lot of properties and, and 52 or above was almost a guarantee. And now you can buy something that's quite pretty in the, the city grid or nearby and you might be hovering around the, the high threes or early fours as a, as a percentage of gross rental yield. Yeah, okay. And and what sort of price point are you getting into to Ballarat and, and Geelong? Um, I guess, you know, six years ago compared to today, what, what what's the sort of difference in the markets? Yeah, Ballarat, six years ago, you could take 200000 and get an entry-level house um, within an easy drive to the city on its own full block. It might have been a little bit rugged, but it was in a, an area that would be pretty easy to, to find a tenant in. And those types of properties now are closer to the 300000 mark. Yeah, and okay. if you're wanting to buy in the city grid or nearby and have a pretty period house in, in good condition, you really do need to circle that 450 to to 650 sort of bracket. So it's a, a significant change. And then when I look at Geelong, six, seven years ago, I was buying single front cottages in Geelong West in Newtown in the, the three and four hundred thousands and that's that's impossible now wow. you're, you're looking at um well into the the sevens and a, a double front california bungalow or, or something really enchanting federation style or a victorian you could you could certainly exceed nine hundred thousand in both of those regions both wow. of those suburbs i hope you bought a lot of them and i, I certainly wish i had <laughs> <laughs> didn't didn't see did those drivers myself. Good on you. Yeah. Now you're you're a published author. You've got a, a book, um, successful property investment. What what can people expect if they if they haven't uh, already picked up a copy of that, Kate? A really easy read. <laughs> That's what they can expect. <laughs> I've got pint-sized topics. It's a forty-eight um, adventures style book and the adventures are just set up as chapters, and most of them are just a few pages long, and it's literally. All kinds of adventures that I've either partaken in or witnessed or done myself, good, bad and indifferent, um, that I've shared with people to illustrate um, some of the things that, that you can face as a property investor. And I wrote the book thinking that if anyone could, could read my adventures first, they could short circuit um, their own adventure and avoid making some of the mistakes that I'd either made or I'd seen others make, but also benefit from some of the positives. 
Yeah, that's that's good. That's what we're here for. If I can uh, find out the mistakes of all the leading property experts and avoid some of them, then uh, yeah, that's oh, uh, my plenty. That's what we're <laughs> chasing. So, so you um, you're, you're pretty pr- prolific with your your writing. I'd recommend people jump onto your website uh, and, and follow some of the stuff that you're doing in in property media and magazines and things like that. Um, one one okay. particular article last year was very popular, and that was some your top five tips, which was sort of um, yeah. if if we're, if we're sort of rattling them off, you were talking about finance first, um, what's your motivation mm-hmm. to invest, um, your time frame for your outcome, um, and then I yeah. guess a little bit more of the motivation of, of why you're wanting to be successful in property. And then the other point was don't wait for the win. Can you can you give us a bit of an insight into these, these points and, and, yeah. and, and what that's all about? Absolutely. I remember doing this and it was um, just after the New Year. So it was a bit of a New Year's resolution type of article. A lot of people make New Year's resolutions and my phone rings in January with people wanting to roll out their their own promise to themselves. Hmm. So it was in response to that. The first one is, is all about finance. There's no point planning or strategizing or jumping out there until you know you can borrow. It's like walking into a candy store without any money in your purse when you're a kid. It's just depressing. So work out what you can spend and what sort of rental yield you might need. And so your your lending manager, broker, or whoever you're talking to will be able to discuss what your cash flows need to look like. And you can take your own sensitivities and risk profile into account as well. Some baby steps might involve going into a, a more yielding area where you, your rents are stronger and your capital growth is, is not as strong and it, it's a nice um, entry point for someone who's fearful. But whatever it is, get your finance sorted, be pre-approved and be properly pre-approved. Don't get onto a portal and just find out an indicative pre-approval, but have an assessor go through your stuff so that you know you're good to go. And then think about your why. So what is it that you're looking to invest? Are you looking to make fast profits? Are you looking to build your financial future over the long term? Do you want to be actively involved in improving a property or is it a passive investment where it's a bit of a set and forget? They're all of the questions that I recommend people ask themselves so that they can pick the strategy that's right for them. And they've also got to think forward to the to the very end of all of this, what's your debt retirement strategy? So are you looking to sell down some high performers and get rid of your debt that way and deal with your capital gains tax? Or are you looking for a portfolio that, over the long term, pays itself down with with the tenants' um, pro- rental proceeds going into a, a savings account till you've negated your debt. What is your your end game? And then from there, you can look at your time frame. And if it's a short term, it means that you're looking potentially at, at being a higher risk investor. And that obviously risk and reward go together. But you've got to be prepared for the downside too. So your time frame for your outcome. How quickly you get moving, that, that's something that you need to address before you hit the market. Yep. And the, what are you proving to, to something or, or, or to someone is a really important thing. A lot of people go into investment for the wrong reasons and sometimes I have to say to someone, yeah, you've had a, a chat at the barbecue and you've met someone else who's doing it, but what is the asset class that you're comfortable with and is property one of them and why are you doing this if it's for future wealth generation that's great but if it's to prove to someone a point it, it could be a really expensive point that you're trying to make yeah. and it could bite you so <laughs> it seems funny that, that people might be you know spending half a million dollars or a million dollars investing to to prove a point but uh it's 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 funny the little things that drive us isn't it 
It is. Yeah, sometimes egos can just get in the way. And I don't say that lightly. I've met a lot of people that shouldn't be buying property or at least not at this stage. And, and, and then the last one. Yeah, sorry. So, t- timing timing the market or or, 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 try yeah. and, or don't try and do that. There's a lot of people out there that, that think that timing the market is the way to go. And I have a lot of clients refer to that, that property clock that you see in, in yep. the media. And I'm not suggesting that it should be disregarded. But when you're trying to time the market, it's a very hard thing to do. And if investment is for the long term for you and you look closely at any capital city's growth over over the, the years if you get up close to the chart you'll certainly see that it's static and there's movement but if you step away from it you'll see generally a positive trajectory the longer you're in the market the better off you'll be so if you can just buy when the timing is right for your finances and don't try and time the market you'll take a fair bit of risk out of it as well because if, if you're trying to time the market, you've got all kinds of competing forces working against you also. When when everybody is wanting to buy and you're seeing a good market run, you're facing a lot of competition and when the market's performing really strongly in some of our capital cities, you might have terrible rents. So it's, it's important not to be too blindsided by the white noise and the, the media reports of where the, the market timing is and make sure that you buy the property with the cash flows that will work long-term for you. Those are some really, really good points uh, and some interesting insights. Uh, do you think that property investors are, are not thinking about the long-term? Like, for example, what, what's the end game? At, at the end of my investment journey, am I, am I selling some of them to, to keep the rest um, as fully paid off assets giving me an income? Do you think that people are not thinking about that and, and maybe a little bit too mm. focused in, you know, I've got to get into Ballarat because it's about to boom, for example? Yes, I certainly do. You've articulated that perfectly. I even met someone this morning, fantastic couple, and he was really keen to talk to me about subdivision opportunities and wanted to canvas Geelong as well. I was more than happy to chat about those two ideas because they're dear to my heart. But I did say to him, what's your motivation? Why are you wanting to do this? And then he said, I'd really like to generate a million dollars in profit in two years. And I said, that, that's a really, really tough um, wow, goal yeah. on any level, but particularly in this asset class. And you're not taking on the risk that you need to because to, to try and generate that, you need a lot of borrowing power, you need a lot of cash flow at your fingertips, you need liquidity, and you're taking on an enormous risk. So let's talk about how we can get you where you want to be, but let's ignore your time frame because two years, I think, is nonsensical in, in property. It's it's very I mean it's very well thought out specific sort of goal. Um, the I guess a more common one is people sort of say you know I want ten properties, but don't have the discussion of well could you have sort of five more expensive ones or mm. do you want to have twenty smaller ones or why ten? What what do you think people's goals are when they're getting into to property in in general? I know that's difficult for as we're talking about different people, but what what, what yeah. do you think the main motivation is for people? People want to generate wealth and they love the idea of a really aggressive capital gain. But what they often miss is the cash flow that comes into the equation. So how do you do this and how do you sustain it longer term? And I agree to your point having a set number of properties 
in your head as, as your goal is not necessarily a clever thing to do. What you should be thinking about is what your out-of-pocket contribution on an ongoing basis is to your portfolio and how comfortable you are with that. And you've also got a provision for when your life changes, whether it's travel, taking on a new job, stepping down um, with your salary to, to move into a different career, having children. There's a lot of moving parts in um, in anyone's lifetime and they obviously need to cater for having cash flows that are different. So if someone's going into a high capital growth strategy and they're trying to collect strong performing metro property assets and they're not taking on board um, any thoughts about the cost of holding all of these properties in for the long term, that strategy can come undone and they're forced to sell when they didn't want to. So I think focusing on getting the best capital growth performance you possibly can out of the cash flows, the contributions that you're comfortable with, that's that's always my, my first starting point with any investor. I think that's a that's a that's some great advice there. Now, you started Kate Bacos Property back in 2014. How has the move gone under your under your own flag? And uh, can you tell us a little bit about what your what your business does? Yeah, for sure. It was an exciting move. I was a bit terrified, as a lot of new business owners <laughs> are. I knew that I had the strength to do it, and I knew that I had um, potential clients out there and I certainly had some great relationships in the industry with other service providers but you know obviously it was a terrifying move because you you need to think that you'll open your doors and people will come in but I I set up in the inner west which was a little bit of a bold move in itself because a lot of firms work out of the city and I love Melbourne's inner west so it was in hindsight a, a great move and we, we specialise in pretty much what I was specialising before I, I left my last role. Um, I'm a, a qualified property investment advisor and a buyer's advocate and I, I love to work in the north and the west of Melbourne. I can certainly work in the, the southeast and the east as well and when I started in property back in 2003, I was working out of an office in Sandringham. So Bayside and Kingston were areas that I could drive to without <laughs> needing to turn on sat-nav but... Um, I really love the community over here and I loved the the value for money that the North and the West offered. I've really enjoyed the capital growth that the areas have sustained and the rental demand and the rental yield is a little bit stronger here than other parts of our city. So, yeah, there are a few strategic reasons for moving over here, but in essence I've enjoyed providing um, support to homeowners and to investors, particularly in, in these pockets. Yeah, awesome, and it's good to good to be uh, having that sort of capital growth and yield right out the back door. You're you're in a good spot yeah, there. Yeah, it's been handy. <laughs> yes. you, you, you do a lot of, um, of of advocate work buying for for people at auction, um, so people yes. can sort of outsource their um, their rights and responsibilities to to an expert such as yourself. What what are some yeah. of the traps for buying at auction, and and what value does does someone like yourself bring to that um, to that sort of way of purchasing? Yeah, I love auctions and a lot of people are scared of them or avoid them. So that's the first thing I'll say when you're working in a market like Melbourne and you decide that you don't want to participate in an auction and you're a buyer, you're chopping out a lot of opportunity. So the first point that I'll make is auctions can be enormously advantageous for buyers at certain auctions and then others they can be heartbreaking but it's all about getting back on the horse. Mm -hmm. 
So what what I would consider a professional brings to an auction scenario, first and foremost, is a bit of reality. We ignore what sort of quoting regime is taking place and we perform an analysis that is based on recent comparable sales analysis or land value and addition method. And we try and give our purchasers a really firm idea of exactly where we think the market value sits for that property. And then we also look at what other properties are competing at the same time with that particular property. So in other words, if you're looking at, let's say, a two-bedroom Victorian cottage in Yarraville, and there's four others that are going to auction either on that weekend or the surrounding weeks, I would consider that that's a bit of an over-representation of two-bedroom period cottages in Yarraville. So the buying conditions for that buyer might be a little bit more advantageous because we've got a bit of a mini glut in the market. And I'll also find out exactly how the campaign's going. So how many other buyers are on the property? What sort of um, result is, is the vendor or the agents anticipating? And it's surprising that to a lot of people that we can get that information, but they have to remember that we're talking agent to agent. We're all real estate agents. Yes. It's just that they're acting for the vendor and I'm acting for the buyer. But when you give a little bit of information, you get a little bit of information and we always try and pinpoint exactly where we think that property is likely to go. So we might say that it's worth a million dollars, but it could be the only one of its kind and there's nothing else on the market right now. There's a lot of buyer interest on it. We could anticipate that it will go over budget. So it's all a case of being prepared. Sometimes having that information from the coalface can help us do an about-face on a, on a property strategy with someone so, for example, we might be gearing up to go for, for property A, but we know that we've got a lesser chance than we were hoping because of the, the sheer popu uh, the, the popularity of the campaign. And there might be another property that we're keeping our eye on and it's maybe not tracking so well and not necessarily for a bad reason, but it's just the way that it goes. So we can, we can change strategy at the last hour and be able to secure a property that, that meets all of the criteria that, maybe wasn't um, recognised by the buyer earlier. But short of, of those two strategic um, advantages, it's actually down to tactics yeah. when you attend an auction and you bid, and that's where it really makes a difference. I'm convinced. And I, and I guess, you know, the the, the auctioneer is, is wanting a result. They're wanting to sell the property. You're potentially got however many buyers in, in tow, they want to maybe sort of leak you a little bit of information to, to mm. sort of suss you out. So, yeah, it's interesting to, to hear that the agents are sort of to talk, talking to each other a little bit there. So Yeah, they do. So, Kate, if, um, if an investor's coming into your office and saying, I've, I've read all your blogs, I've read your book, you're the, you're the advocate for me, um, typically what sort of properties are you selecting for them if they're looking for, for long-term capital growth and, and do you have a, a preference over you know, houses versus units or particular areas mm. at the moment? Is there, a, is there a sort of a textbook long-term capital growth property that you like to invest in? Yeah, a little bit of yes and no. I Everybody's scenario is different, as you've mentioned a couple of times. But if someone said, I'm just interested in capital growth and I've got the, the resources to, to manage the cash flows long term, so I'm not at all cash flow sensitive, I don't mind if the yields are really low, then I've got a responsibility to pick a property that's really well located and will always be. It's got to have um, amenity at its fingertips, so cafes, all the lifestyle stuff that 
buyers and and tenants in the area really value. And you've got to purchase a property that has owner-occupier appeal. That's the critical thing. When agents say to me, oh, it's a great investment, uh, I want something that's really popular for owner-occupiers if it's a long-term investment because if the property ever goes up for auction, they're the, the buyers that I want in that street and I want an entire crowd of cashed-up buyers who are really emotional about the property. But likewise, if the house next door, which is quite similar, goes up for auction and there's a massive crowd, then the resulting figure where the hammer lands is representative of the value of next door. It's a comparable sale. Yes. So we always need to remember that. I don't want to just look at something for investment potential. It's got to have really strong owner-occupier appeal and typically that means it's got to have a degree of scarcity must be good scarce, not weird scarce, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. if that makes sense. Yep. And the old period properties are certainly the ones that score really highly. They're not the only option that we turn to, but they are definitely a classic textbook, perfect property when it comes to capital growth. And it doesn't necessarily have to be on a big block of land or have three bedrooms or a big yard. It just needs to suit the, the mainstream demographic of the area. So if you've got uh, cashed up couples, no um, double income, no kids type people in the area, then a two-bedroom single front cottage in the heart of a village with, you know, shops, cafes, bars and train station a walking distance away, that property will always rent really well. You'll always come on a pretty good rent and you'll find that your vacancy rate is quite minimal. So that they're the the golden rules when it comes to capital growth. Yeah, that's an interesting point and I, I guess it's something for people to consider when you're thinking of, of, of selling the property later on, you will probably have to uh, eventually or even if you're not, you're wanting to revalue and you're wanting the, the growth to, to, to continue to soar. If you're minimizing your, your sort of potential market to only investors, you're, you're, you're cutting mm. out a big percentage of what would be the competition for that property, right? You're absolutely right. So, are there... Any particular things that you look for when you're sort of green lighting an area as part of your due diligence? You, you mentioned sort of proximity to amenities, but if we think sort of more mm. regional areas, what, what are the key things that you're wanting to see before you're prepared to go and invest your money or your client's money in, in, a, in an area? Okay. I need to see that there's a diverse employment on offer and I also need to see that access to employers is is pretty easy. I'd like if it's a regional area, I'd like to see that there are easy links to the capital city. Yep. And if it's a capital city, I, I need to say that there's a growing popularity or a steady popularity of the area. I can't just pick an area because of an infrastructure change or something that we've seen in planning. It needs to be an area that's showing household incomes are steadily increasing over time, which which signals that the area is continuing to attract people who are earning higher incomes than, than the average within the area. We also need to think about access to the city. So transport is a big one for me and as our roads are getting more congested and we've got increasing migration, particularly into Melbourne, we really need to have a think about amenity on the train in particular and how easy it is to get to work. Yeah, that's that's interesting, and and that's going to become a, a bigger and bigger issue as our cities expand that sort of connection to the city. You know, and I suppose there's an upper limit of of a journey that people want to take on a train or in the car as yeah. well. What's um what's happening in the sort of in the market at the moment here uh, here in Melbourne and in the Greater Victorian market? 
Yeah, they're, they're not running in tandem at the moment, so I'll separate them out. Uh, Melbourne has had a, a complete shift over the last 12 to 18 months from what sorts of um, properties are doing really well at auction and where the tightest um, auction clearance rates are. And we've seen such a transition from everyone going after houses on land to, to now people going for apartments and units. And that's been fueled by two things that have been strong forces. The first one is APRA's tightened up our lending, so investors can't get their hands on the money that they used to. Yeah. And we've also seen first home buyers being incentivised, whether it's through grants or through concessions with their stamp duty. It's had an enormous flow-on effect. And we've had this mantra for a long time that you've got to have land on title. And so even two years ago, first home buyers were targeting villa units and townhouses that were, you know, in middle ring suburbs or, or outer ring suburbs. And we've had this shift where people have obviously said, you know what, i want to be in the inner ring and I don't care about land on title as long as I'm in a great block and I'm in a great street and I've got everything you know, at my fingertips, I'm prepared to buy an apartment and I feel good about it. And it, it has been um, a mindset shift that's flowed right throughout um, the first home buyer community and we've seen some really exciting growth for well-located apartments and in particular we've seen what we call boutique apartments, so older style, no lifts, no gyms, no concierge, so maybe two or three-storey blocks with anything from um, six to, to 20 units in the block. They've really taken off. So that's been the most significant shift for Melbourne, and I guess our, our higher-priced properties have had a, a greater chance of passing in, and that market's been a little bit more vulnerable. Uh, when I look at, at the Victorian market, though, we've we've seen some really strong performance in the regions across all of them, not just Ballarat and Bendigo, yep. uh, but sorry, Ballarat and Geelong. We've seen Bendigo as well, and that's been a, a combined force. But a lot of investors who have been um, chopped out of the Melbourne market in the housing market because of lending constraints, and they've opted to go into the regions. Yeah, and I guess that's that's always going to be a little little bit of a driver. The the capital city markets go up; they're going to be pricing people out, and they're still wanting to invest, so they're getting pushed further and further afield. So I, I guess there'll be some good opportunities in the in the regionals for the, for the next little while. With, with the with yeah. the market sort of declining, what, what's the best way for for property investors to still be investing and 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 either either still making capital growth or putting themselves in a position that when things sort of turn around that they They'll be well-placed to, to get that growth. Where, where, where should people be looking now? Yeah. So they should absolutely be focusing on their own cash flows because there's nothing worse than being forced to sell when the market isn't where you want it to be. Nobody enjoys that at all. So making a loss on paper and crystallizing a loss are two different things. And while you can hold on to the property and ride through that storm, there is a little bit of upside. So one of the, the first things I'll talk about is rental increase. We tend to find that when the property market slows down and less investors are purchasing and less buyers are able to afford home ownership, you'll see an increase in tenant demand and a decrease in available rental properties. So what that does is, is has a, a direct um, correlation with rental growth and we see that our rents move in a declining market. So it's it's never a positive thing to consider a declining market, but we certainly enjoy the cash flow that we get as investors when we get that adjustment, particularly in, in cities like Melbourne where our rental yield's pretty low. Yep. So that's the first one. The second one is that 
there's a saying out there, you know, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. You never know at what point in the correction there's a turn. And I remember when we went through the 2011 and 12 um, adjustment and there was a lot of doom and gloom in the media and I was buying for, for clients then and it was very hard to pinpoint when the, the property market turned up and we went back into upswing mode. But when I look back and remember a few months there of really amazing buying conditions, those buyers who, who did take the plunge and, and purchased had some really impressive growth as soon as that market improved again. Yep. So remembering that working counter to the market when people are, are fearful, be greedy, and when people are greedy, be fearful, it's not, it's not a bad mantra. Yeah, I think that's that's great advice, and there's certainly going to be some some opportunities uh, w- waiting for people to 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 get into a market that that does turn around. So yeah, I guess you'll yeah. be you'll be busy with a lot of clients looking uh, for that next boom. Um, can, can you yeah. can you run us through some of the the more successful purchases that you've made for clients, or any particular clients that stand out that have achieved some solid results through property? Yeah, I can um, quite a few, and I'll try and. Think of some diverse ones so that I'm not giving you one typical example. I remember when I first started buying in the inner west and a lot of advocates were talking up sticking to the east and at the time the same money in the east that could buy you a period cottage in the west was pretty much covering a villa unit. And I, I argued uh, the point with a few people that I'd rather a period house in a really well-located pocket where you've got cafes and trains etc like I was talking about before I thought that would be a better investment and I was also fearful about some of the the higher density developments in the southeast at the time we had towers going up in South Yarra and South Bank and St Kilda and there was a lot of oversupply and I decided to stick to my own mantra and think really carefully about location scarcity um certainly vacancy rate, being able to find a tenant's really important. So at the time I had a couple who lived in the east and they were willing to consider the west and they knew nothing about it. And we bought a single front period property in Seddon, which is a teeny little suburb wedged between Yarraville and Footscray. And the rest is history. We bought that for 700000 It was completely renovated, absolutely gorgeous. It had a, a perfect floor plan in terms of um, your, your classic uh, extension at the back where you've got open plan, living, dining and French doors out to a great deck and it's done really well for them. They've had minimal um, turnover with tenants and pretty much almost zero vacancy in between and that that was a, a real turning point for um, a couple of advisors that were privy to, to that recommendation and it was a while ago. Um, I've also had clients two and a half years ago who wanted to buy a house on a block of land and do a bit of a renovation but they were quite fearful about the unknown and at the time I thought their $500,000 budget inclusive of stamp duty was going to be a tough ask for sunshine but we did it so we bought uh, a classic sort of yellow brick um, triple fronted house in a a 50 sort of style for them and it it's done really well so they did their renovation they had friends support them and i'd argue that the property that we bought for four hundred and seventy-one thousand two and a half years ago is um, in excess of seven hundred thousand today so that that was nice one that i remember vividly and it was just down to market timing i knew that 
Sunshine was good, but I didn't anticipate it would have that that burst of performance like it did. Um, I remember another couple about five and a half years ago had a budget of eight fifty, and a young couple was with young children, and they had the cash flows to support something spectacular, and we bought um, a brick terrace in Fitzroy North and at the time 850 felt like a big spend particularly as a first time investment but they've had enormous equity growth in that and they've been able to springboard into other properties so again it was a really happy story fantastic those are some pretty pretty solid results now Kate if if people are interested in getting in in touch with you what's the what's the best way to do that uh, via my website so I've got a um, a lot of blog material and articles on there but if they drop me an email from the website i'll come straight back to them so it's kate with a c katebakos.com.au nice and easy and uh kate i've really enjoyed chatting to you we've got a tremendous amount uh, out of out of the interview i'm really looking forward to, to sharing it if we can finish off though um if there's one piece of advice that you can give to property investors what would that be Wow, it's that's the hardest question you are thrown at me. <laughs> One piece of advice. Wow. Um, get your finance sorted. Right. That's the first thing to do. Once you know what you can borrow and you know what your cash flows look like, the world is your oyster and you can really start to make some, some good decisions. So, yes, get your finance approved. The horse before the cart. Yeah. Fair always. enough. Awesome. Thanks very much, Kate. It's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having me on. Awesome. Cheers.